Hi, this is Oren. If you find these teachings useful and you'd like to learn more about my work, you can visit me online at orenjsofer.com or on social media at orenjsofer. Thanks so much. So, good morning once again. Nice to be back here with you. Uh, you probably noticed there's a different different background here. After my talk yesterday, I thought I would uh, share my my practice space, my altar with you. You can see I've got the Buddha Rupa and uh, some pictures of my first teacher there, Anagarika Manindraji. So just wanted to share that after uh, after this whole month of spending spending mornings together. So um, before we move into our Q&A, just one announcement, which is that tomorrow morning at the same time and this same uh, Zoom link, uh, Caroline and I will have a closing session. We'll do a little teaching uh, and have some more uh, Q&A and then uh, chanting at the end. So if you'd like to join us, feel free. I put the link there in the chat. And for our time this morning, it's, uh, it's quite open. What's, what's on your mind? What's been coming up for you in your practice uh, or your, your life as practice that you would like to explore together? So I'll just read the, uh, the question or, or comment. Uh, wholeheartedness, feelings of loss arose for me, grief and resistance. By committing fully, by practicing devotion wholeheartedly, will I lose something of myself, some agency and sense of myself? Thank you. Um, yeah, I think it's natural for some fear to come up, uh, some sense of uncertainty when we think about fully committing to anything, right? Because by definition, choosing one thing means leaving something else out. Uh, so I think this is a very, a very natural response in the heart. Um, so the question comes up: What are you, what are you leaving behind? Right? Um, I wouldn't. My experience is one isn't leaving behind any sense of agency. In fact, you're actually activating your agency more by fully, fully engaging with something. Uh, I'd say what you're leaving behind is the sense of ambiguity, waffling, um, a kind of, basically we're leaving behind the unskillful aspects of our mind and fully committing to the skillful, wholesome ones. And uh, so I would... I would say two things is that one, there's an aspect of that, that fear or grief that I think is, is natural, but some of it seems to be in the way you're describing it, like losing yourself uh, or losing some agency that there's some misunderstanding. And so what I would encourage is I would encourage you to practice with it, right? Explore what's it like to fully commit wholeheartedly to anything, to washing the dishes, you know, to... Uh, being present with a friend uh, when you sit, you know, really sit, give it your wholehearted attention. And that doesn't mean the mind's not going to wander. It just means there's a different 
kind of energetic container around it and see what comes up. Uh, stay with the investigation of that fear or grief or sense of loss and see what's, what's actually real or true about it and what isn't. So, thank you. hope that's helpful. Uh, another, another comment or question here. I've studied for a number of years, uh, but I'm unable to sit and meditate without multitasking. So I want to know what you mean by multitasking. Like, are you looking at your phone? Or uh, does that mean maybe your mind is, sounds like maybe your mind is doing something else at the same time. I attend a number of sessions each week, but can't really give it the focus it deserves. I've attended a number of residential retreats and am more successful, but I need a structure such as deprivation of my gizmos, etc., to really get quiet. I believe if I can do this more intensely, it will help me internalize the teachings I understand intellectually. Yeah, thank you so much for the uh, for the comments and uh, for your your openness and honesty with that. Uh, that challenge you're facing around the kind of tendency of the mind to always have something else going, right? The multitasking and the difficulty of disengaging from technology and devices and distraction, as, as well as the, the, there's a certain wisdom, I think, in maturity, even in recognizing the difference between an intellectual understanding and a felt embodied understanding. Um, so I think the fact that you are aware of all of that is a great sign, it's progress. And it means um, it means that you're asking the right questions and that you have enough understanding to recognize the direction to go in. Uh, so I share all of that, hopefully, to offer some encouragement for, for right where you are. Uh, and also, I, I want to, the next thing is I want to normalize everything you're sharing about distractedness and the fixation on either multitasking or, you know, getting lost in the devices. Uh, this is the world we live in. And for many of us, our surroundings are constantly con reconditioning our minds to be distracted, to multitask, to jump from one thing to the next, uh, to always be looking ahead. So as you point to, this is the value of taking time for silent retreat to step out of this environment of the modern world and get a taste of what it's like to condition the mind in another way. So how to work with this, right? Um, maybe a few things. So one is the reminder, right, that there's this paradox in the practice. On the one hand, whatever's happening is the practice. There's no other experience we are supposed to be having. And the paradox is that, and at the same time, there is a value placed upon the mind settling having clarity and understanding the nature of things. This was very hard for me earlier in my practice. I, I struggled a lot against the distractedness of the mind because I was so enamored with the possibility of insight that whenever the mind wouldn't settle, I would get very frustrated and upset. I'm not doing it right. I'm not making progress. 
it took some time to understand and recognize two things. One, that settledness comes not from wanting it, but from relaxing with what's happening. It's again like that image of a glass of apple juice that Thich Nhat Hanh uses filled with pulp, and you just, you just rest it, you just put it down on the counter, and then the pulp settles. So our mind is like that. It's stirred up with all kinds of distractions and energies, and we just want to hold a space, hold a container of presence and warmth and interest and let it settle on its own. That was the first thing that it took time to learn. The second thing that it took time to learn was that the process of being with the distracted mind, the unfocused mind, the multitasking mind, the disturbed mind is in itself liberating and insightful. There's so much to be learned from being with the ordinary madness of your own mind. Because let's say you had a propensity for concentration. You could put everything down and sit and drop into states of deep stillness and clarity. Great, wonderful. Is that how you're spending most of your life? Probably not. Most of our life is spent dealing with the ordinary mundane tasks of living and having conversations and getting things done. That's really what we need to practice, being present and kind and patient and honest and generous and compassionate with. And there is no shortage of opportunity to do that. So practically speaking, I would say one, try to shift your view and your expectation. Look to the, look to the part of your mind that's judging your experience and practice and saying, it's not good enough, I'm not doing it right, it should be different, and question that. What would it be like to acknowledge or consider whatever's happening when you sit down to be exactly the right teaching you need, exactly the right practice? And so that's one. Two, bringing a tremendous amount of kindness and forgiveness to our practice. So the multitasking, the distractedness, you say you're going to sit for half an hour and after 10 minutes you're on your phone, just keep forgiving. Just really, the more you can bring a spirit of unconditional love and forgiveness to yourself in this practice, uh, the easier it will be, the more joyful it will be, and the more, ironically, you will make progress because that creates the conditions uh, for, for things opening. And this is not a kind of permissiveness. It's not like, well, Oren said, be forgiving, so anything goes. No, we still commit. We still make an effort, but we recognize that what happens next isn't up to us. This is all, all of this is very important, what I'm sharing in terms of having the right approach. Remember that, that the path begins with right view and uh, right intention. These first two factors of the Noble Eightfold Path that are about wisdom. So we need to set things up in the proper way. Otherwise, everything else is off. So work to internalize and integrate what I've shared so far. Then, and only then, you can begin to work very gently, patiently, and diligently with the distractedness in your own mind, coaxing, encouraging, inviting, 
some more settling. And you work slowly, so if you're finding you can only sit for 10 minutes, stretch it to 12. And bear with the restlessness of those last two minutes. If you're sitting for 20 minutes, stretch it to 25. If you can only be with one in-breath, try to be with the next out-breath. So, so work within the range of, of what's, what's just where you are with a, a spirit of friendliness. There's a, saying, there's a, a, a quote from uh, Ajahn Sumedho that I, I think is a transliteration or a rendering of something from the early texts. It's make an effort joyfully. It's that sense that the, the energy and effort we put into this practice is not meant to be this heavy thing, but a joyful effort. It's like if you're going to cook a beautiful meal for your loved one, and it's a lot of work, but there's joy in it because you're doing it because you love the person and you want to give them something. It's that same sense of joy in the practice. So I, I hope some of this is helpful in giving you some guidance there. So I'm seeing uh, wonderful questions here, and we'll, I'll just keep going and see how many of them I can get to. Uh, half a year ago, I made a new friend whom I started dating soon afterwards, introduced him to mindfulness, and throughout the time that I've known him, we've had very interesting conversations about practice, Buddhism, etc. He started his own practice and has expressed his gratitude to me many times, saying that those conversations have helped him to see the world in a completely new way and give new meaning to his life. How beautiful, wonderful. He also says this is the first time he's communicated feelings this honestly in a relationship. Okay, I like where this is going. I'm not sure what's coming. I'm very happy that I've been able to contribute to his life in this way. Ah, but I'm also a little bit worried about taking on the role of, quote, teacher in this relationship, particularly because I used to have a strong tendency to think I know what's best for other people, and that tendency still sometimes manifests itself. Any tips for keeping a healthy balance in this situation? Great. Yeah, absolutely. Don't become his teacher. <laughs> I think your intuition is 100% accurate. I would agree with that. Um, yeah, there's a difference between being a good friend and placing oneself above another. Recognize that that tendency to compare ourselves, to say I'm the same as, I'm on equal footing, I'm better, I'm worse than, is a deeply rooted tendency in the mind. In the Dharma, it's called uh, manas, uh, Conceit is how it's translated, but it's the sense of conceiving of a person and then comparing. And this particular tendency is said to not be uprooted until the final stage of awakening. So it's going to be around for a while for most of us. The practice is one of just seeing it, observing it, becoming aware of it when it arises. You don't have to make it go away. So I would I would share this intention with your, your friend uh, and let him know, hey, like I've got this, you know, pattern, this tendency. I love our conversations and I'm happy to keep exploring, but I want to do it as peers and ask for his support. You know, if you ever notice uh, me moving into the role of teacher, I want you to call me on it because that's not where I want to come from. And I don't think it's healthy for our relationship and just make it a practice to just be mindful of it. All right. Next question, how to work with those thoughts during meditation that feel very productive or you're aware of seeing a problem or issue in your life from a different perspective? It's very seductive to keep with these thoughts and experiences. Thank you for this question. It's a, for me, it's an important one and one that often gets misunderstood, I think, in the instructions and teachings. 
or I should say, you know, misheard from the instructions. So the instruction to not get involved with thoughts, to notice thinking and come back to your anchor, to the breath, is a particular phase of practice. As I explored earlier this week on Monday, if you weren't there, you can go back to the recordings, either on my YouTube or the Dharma Seed. We looked at these two phases, the shamatha and the vipassana, the exclusive phase of practice of shamatha and the inclusive phase of vipassana. So when you are when you recognize that what's needed is the focus more on steadying the mind, that inclination, then yes, those thoughts are actually going to dissipate the energy in your mind. And in that case, you would want to disengage from them because it's just going to continue this kind of stirring. Once there's some stability in the mind, then it's fine to include whatever's happening in your awareness. And I'm guessing if you're having shifts in perspectives, what is uh, I refer to as a kind of personal insight. It's a, a, a layer or level of insight where we see and understand per- aspects of our particular life from new perspectives. This is something that's quite normal and in the Dharma and is a certain sign of the, the mind shifting because we're there's a new clarity and we're not no longer locked in only one angle of seeing things. So this is, this is quite helpful and we want to actually learn from this. So the misunderstanding that you're pointing to, this tension you're experiencing, is a sign that you are outgrowing a previous notion about what the practice means in relation to thoughts and content that all thoughts and content need to be put down and not engaged with. Well, what's more the case is we need to evaluate what thoughts are and content can we learn from and which ones are not helpful. So the Dalai Lama talks about the difference between a valid and an invalid thought. So recognizing which thoughts are helpful and true and accurate and which thoughts are not helpful. The task here and the challenge is when a useful, valid thought arises, like some new perspective or insight, how do we learn from that without getting caught up in it? And this is the part that we explore in the practice, is the capacity to be aware of thinking without getting lost in it. So when these productive perspectives and thoughts come up, notice the difference between sort of holding your seat. You're still very rooted in the present with the body, with what's happening, and taking in the information. There's kind of a like, oh, that's interesting. Uh-huh. Okay, that's worth, that's worth looking into. It registers. And, oh, wow. Okay, yeah, let's think about that. And then getting pulled into the train of associative thinking and you actually lose presence. Now you're just in the realm of thought. That's what's not useful. So what we're looking to learn how to do is how to maintain a steady, aware, grounded knowing of what's happening and to allow the thoughts, the associations, the perspectives to come and go within awareness. So that's the first thing to begin to explore. Can you hold your seat 
as these thoughts and perspectives come through. The next thing, when you can begin to do that, then you can, then you can sort of pivot within your meditation to a kind of exploration of a particular problem. So something comes up about a relationship or work and you've got a new perspective on it. Okay, you know, like, wow, this is, this is worthwhile. I'd like to pursue this some. You can engage the mind in a process of reflection that is not dissipating the steadiness or clarity of the mind. And here, the object or theme of your meditation becomes this particular situation or problem. But you're still anchored in the, in, the, in the body and in the knowing, the awareness of what's happening. And then you just kind of step back and allow the mind to associations or thoughts or perspectives to come. And, and holding a frame of steady awareness. And this is the, uh, the process of using the practice to explore some particular content or question or area of our life which can be very helpful. But it, it requires a certain finesse in being able to keep the mind engaged with presence without getting lost in the content. So this is, should be enough for you to explore there. I hope that's helpful. A uh, question about Dark Night of the Soul. Uh, in reading about it, I realized there that's, that's me for five plus years now, as much as I try to find a different way of being through meditation and dharma. Oof, yes, what resources would you suggest to move out of this awful space? Mm. Yeah, there are these periods we go through of, of a real kind of crucible in the heart with a lot of, can be pain, confusion, feeling stuck, a kind of heaviness. It can be very hard. Um, so if you're not finding that the meditation and the practice are shifting the conditions in your mind sufficiently to bring about some resolution or, you know, metabolizing of this state, then I think your impulse to turn towards other resources is quite healthy and, and, and wise, I would explore. I would explore. So personally, I've found things like uh, somatic experiencing, which is a form of therapy and healing based in nervous system process, focused on healing trauma, which most of us alive today have some form of trauma that we've lived through, um, but also very valuable just in basic psychotherapeutic healing and emotional healing. You could look into somatic experiencing. There's another form of um, th therapy called Hakomi, H-A-K-O-M-I, that's mindfulness-based, it's quite good. Uh, dance, expressive arts. Essentially, you're wanting to, one, begin to move the energy in your body. So look at what can you do uh, that, that puts your body and mind in, in different spaces, different experiences than you're currently having. And then two, I think you want to work with someone in a, in a healing relationship who can begin to explore this terrain and guide you through it. I hope that's helpful. Any advice for unusually powerful and intrusive worry that I cannot make peace with? I try acceptance and can succeed for about five minutes. 
and it's back again. I try peacefully coexisting with it, but any peaceful feelings also pass in about five minutes. Thank you for the question. Well, first thing is that's amazing that you can have some acceptance for five minutes and have some peace for five minutes. That's huge, <laughs> particularly if this worry is as powerful and intrusive as you, you describe. I mean, that's a huge accomplishment to be able to have some measure of acceptance for that long or be able to put it down. I think that's there's something there to build on. The problem we have as human beings with our emotions is that we resist the unpleasant ones. We don't like them and try to control them. We don't know how to be with them. It's not the feeling itself that's the issue. That's uncomfortable. It's unpleasant. But it's our lack of skill and capacity in being able to be with our feelings in a balanced and easeful way. So notice that you want the the worry to go away. Notice, see if you can begin to notice the difference between this worry, this anxiety, and the reaction to it that says, I don't like this, make it stop. This quite natural response. We don't like unpleasant experiences. This is hardwired in us. But it's that pulling away or resisting or tightening that actually feeds the worry, that deepens it, that gives it energy. You've probably noticed when you are able to accept it, it begins to subside. So in some sense, what you're working with is a, very, is a really potent teacher for understanding the mechanism of suffering. Because you have an experience that is powerful enough that it's giving you instant feedback. I remember one relationship breakup I had that was quite shattering. And the suffering was really, the heartbreak was just really strong. And it was so clear anytime my mind went towards thinking about this person, missing them, wondering about the relationship, the pain was instant and intense. So with the the worry that you're dealing with, what's it like to begin to orient around this experience of emotion as a teacher? And you can begin to observe the Four Noble Truths right there from moment to moment in your own experience. So some worry arises. I haven't said this yet, but I want to make sure it's clear. Like, this is entirely natural and normal, particularly for the times that we're living in right now with all of the public health crisis, the economic uncertainty, the uncertainty about the future. I mean, there is so much to worry about. It's real. And yet worrying doesn't help, right? We recognize that. So we can learn from that experience. Every time the worry comes up, ah, this is suffering. This is the first noble truth. The injunction of the first noble truth is to know suffering, to understand suffering, rather than to fix it, to make it go away, to resolve it. But how, so how do we understand something? We have to come close to it. We have to be willing to encounter it. So, okay, there's some oppressive worry. 
Ah, this is dukkha. This is what the Buddha was talking about. Human beings suffer. Okay, how can I learn from this? So we come close to it. And then what's the cause? What's this arising from? What's feeding this? Well, the mind was thinking about this. Oh, there's this sensation in my body that I'm reacting to. So you begin to study what's driving this. Where is the thing that's keeping it going? Not in an intellectual way, but in the felt sense. Just listen, feel, sense. How is this happening? Where is the worry in my body? And then how am I relating to it? And then observe from moment to moment the arising of the worry and any of its dissipation. And how does the heart attach, control, resist? Look for that force of tanha, craving. This is what's feeding the cycle of anxiety and worry. It's that energy of relating to it with out clear understanding of the nature of this emotion. The nature of this emotion is to change. It's not in our control. It's not personal. When that wisdom and understanding is present, we no longer have the hubris to try to control it. It's when we try to control it and manipulate it and resist it and fix it that we get entangled and suffer. And you can observe that process from moment to moment. The arising of control and resistance is also not up to us. That just comes and goes due to causes and conditions. But it's the bearing witness to that process of the resisting and the not wanting it and the make it go away and then something relaxing and releasing, and then not wanting it and resisting it and getting entangled, and then something releasing. That's the arising and the ending of suffering right here and now in our own experience. The knowing of that, the witnessing of that is the path. And the more we bring our heart's full awareness to that process, the more something profound is learned about the process of letting go, which really, as many people point out, is about letting be. We can't let go. We don't let go. We are, by definition, what's holding on. <laughs> Allow things to be, and then they let go on their own. I hope that's helpful. These are great questions, everyone. So this will probably be the last one. And... Um, I would say, you know, there's a few more here in the chat. I invite you to come back tomorrow. Uh, same time, Caroline and I will be having a closing session. I'll offer some reflections. We'll do a Q&A, and then Caroline will offer a closing. And again, I'll put the link back here in the chat. It's the same as the link for today. There you go. All right, last one here. When I'm afraid, and I'm afraid a lot lately, my mind's natural inclination is to try to control, order, organize. Okay, I'm responsible for people in my household. I know that trust and letting go are the next step. It feels very frightening. Once I take the leap, things often go better. But the leap is terrifying. Do you have practice suggestions to help me get off the ledge? Okay, I think that my last response to the other question probably speaks to you. So I'm just going to leave that one there. Um, yeah, any recommendations for other available online options to carry us through these times? Absolutely. So the Insight Meditation Society, 
uh, it has they're taking their programs online. And this offering that I've been doing and Caroline has been doing this month has been sponsored by the Insight Meditation Society freely. And so they have a program right now happening with Joseph and Sharon, the two founders, two of the founders of the Insight Meditation Society uh, and other programs. So I would check out the Insight Meditation Society's webpage for other online offerings. I will be teaching a uh, five-day loving-kindness retreat with Sharon Salzberg and two of our other colleagues that starts in two weeks. That's that's another way if you want to stay in touch. There's also um, on my website, there is a page of resources. I think it's linked uh, at the top in the resources bar for COVID-19. And on that page are a whole bunch of links to free online offerings that are happening every day, every week. Uh, Another one, I'll just mention a couple more here, the 10% Happier uh, app. They have a session every day at, I think it's 3 p.m. East Coast time, 20 minutes. It's a short meditation and a Q&A. Uh, so go to that resources page on my website, and uh, there's a whole list of things happening. So maybe last one here. I know I said the last one would be the last one. Um, As we become more conscious spiritually and meditate, our hearts often become more open. I have noticed that many I know in this position are suffering deeply as they witness our current situation. Can you comment? Thank you. Hmm. This practice is about opening to the way things are. And the way things are is that there's, we live in a violent society. We live in an unjust, unequitable world where there's immense suffering. And so as the heart opens, we open to everything. We open to the peace and the joy and the beauty, and we open to the pain and uh, the tragedy and the heartbreak. This is the, the fullness of life. It's the qualities of compassion and equanimity that allow us to bear witness to the suffering without being crushed. And qualities of compassion and equanimity. And equanimity is rooted in wisdom and understanding. Compassion is the caring of the heart that that seeks to alleviate the suffering, that, that helps us to respond, to act, to do what we can. I don't have an answer for you. It's one of the things that I talk about with my own teachers and colleagues, and this is the predicament of human existence, right? And particularly the challenge of our times where we have access to so much information. I think it's important to regulate and to um, moderate our intake, particularly of the news. Uh, I have an article on my website on uh, tips for staying balanced with the news, you might check that out. Make it a practice. Opening to suffering is a practice. It's the core of this path in many ways. And, you know, the the bodhisattva path, this, this turning of the wheel that comes with Mahayana Buddhism is about how we meet that suffering. 
and the immense power of the, the compassion of the heart to vow to help, to be there as a support. I think that part of being alive today is the responsibility, one, of bearing witness, of bearing witness to all that's happening on our planet, not just to the human species, but to other species. And two, seeing what we can do to help. That's, that's, that's what my understanding is, what we are called to. Because what's, what, what other choice do we have, right? To shut off, to close down, to look the other way. It's not easy. And this is, this is the gift of the practice is that we have tools we have a path, we have supports, we have each other, we have Sangha, we have the, the example of those who have come before us, we have the teachings, we have the vision of, of the Buddha and his awakening and the potential in each of us for freedom and awareness and profound love. And we use these as a guide. All right, everyone. Thanks for joining me this morning. I hope to see you tomorrow for our closing uh, of these this month of teachings. I do want to mention again um, something I think I mentioned last week, which is if you're in a position to support the Insight Meditation Society, uh, donations are wholeheartedly welcomed. There's no obligation. These teachings have been offered freely in the spirit of generosity, both from Caroline and myself and the Insight Meditation Society. Uh, and our meditation centers are struggling to stay afloat right now. And so if you are in a position where you do have the resources, I know many of us are struggling economically, and so there's, there's no demand here. Uh, it's a real joy to be able to offer this. And if you have resources and feel moved to contribute to support the Insight Meditation Society so that we can continue doing this in so many other ways, uh, you can go to www.dharma.org, D-H-A-R-M-A.org, and make a contribution to the Insight Meditation Society. All right. Thanks, everyone. It's been a real joy to be here. I hope to see you tomorrow morning.